Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Brendan Payne with Century 21 in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Last year, he closed 163 transactions with a total sales volume of $24 million. His average sales price was $147,000, of which 15% were buyers and 85% were sellers. He has a six-member team, one buyer specialist, two listing specialists, one client care coordinator, one executive assistant, and one team leader. Brendan Payne is the team leader of the Brendan Payne team. He's been an agent for 10 years. He sold 1,029 homes in his career. In this call, Brendan talks about listing 30 homes his first 150 days in the business by implementing a proven system and describing his daily schedule during that time. How he got up to 100 closings in his third year by focusing on listing sellers and referring out all buyers. Why sellers still made up 85% of his business last year working a resort market, and why he works with both full-time residents and second-home clients, why it's important to learn the language of your market and master your scripts, database marketing and residual revenue, why he changed from top producer to Infusionsoft for his CRM, making 50 contacts per day, why expired listings account for 26% of his business, describing his expired marketing method, role-playing his scripts with me for calls and setting appointments with expired listings, how he tracks down expired listing phone numbers, team dynamics, compensation, profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Brendan. Thanks, Mike. Good to be on here with you. Hey, Brendan. Thank you so much for joining us today. Brendan, before we talk about what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. Okay. So before I got licensed in early 2007 and before that, I spent about 10 years going up the uh, corporate ladder in the retail environment. So I got out of college and ended up getting into retail, not so much on the store and the sales side, but was actually within the loss prevention pyramid. So I was kind of in charge of keeping stuff in the stores and managing their bottom lines, I guess. So I kind of worked my way up through that. And uh, when I made the move, I was actually with Lowe's. They had moved me from Midwest down to Carolina and um, was charge of about 16 different stores from North Carolina down to Hilton Head, South Carolina, when I made the move over to get in the real estate industry. And why did you make that transition? Why did you move from, sounds like a nice secure job. Why did you go from there into real estate? There were two reasons. One, I think in most corporate type positions, at least in my experience, and definitely in the retail environment, you're really either moving up and seen as kind of a player in terms of being able to uh, fix problem areas, or it's one of those things where there's not a lot of people that are 
staying around in one area. So when I got down here to uh, the Carolinas, myself and the partners on the shore side had made a pretty big impact. And so I knew at that point they were going heavy into the Northeast at the time. They were putting a lot of stores in Florida all the way up through the coast to New York and New Jersey, and I just didn't want to move anymore. I had bounced around for about eight or nine years and made several moves, and so I figured, one, I have to find something that is um, got some stability. I really didn't want to leave the coast once I got here. And the other part of it was, I think a lot of us that have been in career-type, you know, real jobs, so to speak, in the past, just really got kind of frustrated with putting in the effort that I did that I felt maybe merited a little bit more compensation in seeing someone that was maybe not working as hard or getting the results, and because you're all kind of within a salary pay grade, bringing home the same or similar income. And so I was looking for something that I would be able to be compensated based on my commitment and what I actually did to earn a living, not the, a pay grade that is off an annual review. So you didn't want that pay ceiling that you had there in the corporate world. So let's talk about when you made that transition, when you went into real estate that first year, did you have a fast start or a slow start? Well, I guess by industry standard or what most people, I guess, would probably look at and say it was a pretty quick start. I left on a Friday and showed up as an agent on Monday and went from a six-figure income to zero (laughs) over the course of a weekend. So there really wasn't going to be anything that I would probably look at and say it was going to be fast enough, but I had done a lot of homework. I interviewed with a lot of brokers and owners in my market before I made the move. I didn't make the move until I was very clear I could connect the dots between when I showed up, I had a very clear plan of what I was going to do. Then it was just a matter of going out and executing it. I believe that it was going to work. It was just a matter of me going out and doing it. So I started in May of 2007, and I think I ended up between May and the end of that year in 2007. I think I closed around 22 or 23 transactions in that time period. So in seven months-ish, you closed 22 transactions just out of the gate. Now, you said you had a plan for that first month, for that first start, for the first day. Do you remember what that plan was? You know, there are people listening that are in that position. They're just getting started. They'd love to hear, I'm sure. What was your plan there out of the gate? Well, I'll back up a minute and go back to, I was very clear coming from the environment that I did everything that I was responsible for in my previous life in terms of when I was with Lowe's, everything was spelled out. So there was a policy, a procedure, there was a way to go about doing everything. That's what I was very comfortable with. And what I found in talking with a lot of the brokers and the owners in real estate, that didn't exist. And a lot of the people that I would, I would ask them, I'd say, listen, I'm getting into business. It was 2007. So at least in our market, things had begun to really crash, but it was getting a little weird. We were getting multiple home equity lines and qualified for 15 oceanfront condos and all these things were getting in the mail in 05 and 06. And then it started to slow down. Then we started watching where some of our neighbors' homes weren't selling. So it was a little weird time. And I'm talking to the brokers and owners about, you know, if I make this move, then what's the process when I show up? And it was really vague. They were, well, we've got a great training program and we're going to get you online and we've got some manuals and you're going to do um, some 
shadowing with Bob, and then I'd go talk to Bob and find out that Bob's been in the business for like 20 years, and I'm not going to be able to duplicate what Bob does because I only lived in the market for two years at the time. So my strategy when I came in and ended up finding the company that I was going to work with, they basically practiced the Mike Ferry sales system. And so my coach at the time, the owner of the company, and now my business partner was actually a coach for Mike for several years. And so he was able to lay out, this is exactly what you're going to do on a day-to-day basis. And if you focus on the process, the results will show up. So I came into the business knowing when I showed up on Monday, I was going to be learning scripts, getting on the phone, making calls, and doing that until I had some business. So you dove right in on the prospecting side. You started making calls. Were you making calls on the phone? Were you knocking on doors? What were you doing? So before I actually started, they said, no, here are all the scripts. So the best thing you can do is go back and before you make the move, you start memorizing these, get them internalized, feel very comfortable with them. So I knew at that point, and back to my previous experience, I realized every industry has its own language. So that was my biggest concern. I had bought and sold some homes, but I didn't know the conversation. So the scripts that I had to learn were very critical. When I showed up on Monday, I needed to know, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I had the information on what I had to learn to say. And so, yes, I got, I think, probably three or four days that I needed to listen to a couple of agents. And then I had to get script certified. So I had to actually sit down with one of the office managers and the broker in charge and role play the script and make sure that it was going to be, you know, I still had a lot to learn, but make sure that it was at least going to be effective enough so that it, one, didn't completely put off the people that I'm on, and two, there's a lot to be said for having the confidence when you're on the phone, and they want to make sure that I was going to have some confidence in what I was going to say so I didn't throw up my hands on Thursday and say, this isn't for me. So you internalized the scripts, you learned them, you dove into those first, which was wise. Once you started making the calls, who were you calling? We've got a fairly large percentage of the sales in our market were a resort market. We've got a lot of absentee owners, a lot of investment properties, a lot of second homeowners. And so I started with those. I started along the oceanfront, calling buildings that, frankly, I wouldn't have known one from the other had been in them. But the one thing that we do know is that people that are outside of a market, they want information. And that was a transitioning time in the market. So the calls that I was making, people were interested in kind of knowing what's going on. So in the beginning, it was really just going through and having high-level, surface-level conversations about, you know, giving you a call. We just sold another one. When do you plan on moving? When do you plan on selling? And then getting into answering their questions about, well, how is the market? And, you know, like any sales call or any prospecting call, the skill that I continue working on is just finding motivation, being able to hear who's got some motivation and who doesn't. So it sounds like you started with just sold calls. You were calling around properties that you had just sold and offering that information to these absentee owners inside of your market who are curious about what's going on there. Did the majority of those 22 closings that first seven months, were they sellers? Were they listings? Yeah. I actually got very lucky. My first closing was about 90 days after I had started, but it was a complete fluke. I had some friends that had moved away. 
and they happened to move back right after I got into the business. So I got lucky, got to uh, work with them and represent them on the purchase of a home. And then I believe all of the other ones that year were probably listings. So I had moved on from still doing cold calling to be able to build the database. But as you know, I mean, cold calling is not the highest quality of calls to make. So I had moved on pretty quickly to for sale by owners and making expired calls every morning. You had done that early on. You had done that within that first seven months, say with by the second or third month, you were calling for sell by owners and expired. Does that sound right? Probably after about 30 days. About 30 days in. Wow, that's great. Do you recall how many calls you were making each day there at the beginning to get up and going so quickly? My contact goal is 50 contacts a day. Now, it wasn't dials. That was contact. So way we've always defined contact is having a conversation with an adult owner of the property. <laughs> sure. No kids, right? Yep. And so a decision maker of the property, you're yep. making calls out, you're making contacts. In order to make those 50 contacts, how many dials would you have to make? Boy, that's a good question. I never kept track of dials. I kept track of just about every other metric out there, but never kept track of dials just primarily because in the beginning, I wasn't using a dialer or I was just hand dialing. And I went from hand dialing one phone to then hand dialing two phones. And to keep track of the attempts, it would have just taken too much time. So I honestly don't know. Did you recall the time, how long it would take you to contact 50 people? Well, it's interesting because you go through kind of phases, and I've found this with the new agents that I've been working with in my company. In the beginning, you don't really know what to say. You know, you're just like, all right, try not to get hung up on. And so the calls are very quick. Then after a period of time, your contacts start going down because you start learning some more about really what they want to know, and you start learning more about what you want to say, and then you make the mistake of talking too much. So the contacts start going down. Then you find that happy medium where you know what to say, but instead of talking, you ask questions. And then that's where, you know, you kind of hit that happy medium. And I was probably in the beginning making 10 to 12, 10 to 14 contacts an hour. And so that would mean that I'd be 8 to 11 was my ritual. So 8 to 11, I was prospecting. Then I typically would come back in the afternoons and maybe do an hour or so in the afternoon. And then I was calling at night and on Saturdays, you know, for evening calls, your contacts went through the roof because people weren't at work. So I was able to pick up quite a few during that period of time. But usually, you know, anywhere from probably four to six hours in the beginning. Wow, you were doing four to six hours of calling per day, and it sounds like on Saturdays as well? Correct. You got really lucky. You found a system. You found a broker who believed in the system and you dove all in. You were willing to give it your all. Now, your background was not in sales, correct? It was not, nope. You just knew that a system was the way to go and you spotted a system that made sense, the Mike Ferry system, and you dove into it and it played out relatively quickly for you. You said you had the first closing in 90 days, but you must have saw the buildup of the leads in your database and felt pretty good about it. In the beginning, did you have reserves? Did you have money put aside for any length of time? Did you have a deadline that you had to make this work by? I did. I actually had probably four and a half months of income in savings. 
And then I had an equity line on the property that we owned. And I promised, though, I promised myself and I promised my wife that I absolutely would not dip into that. That was the goal. You know, the living expenses and stuff were covered. We had some lifestyle changes. We weren't going out to eat anymore for a while. We weren't living in poverty, but we were being very, very cautious with anything outside of the normal, what we needed in terms of expenses. So we changed lifestyle a little bit. And really, I just was adamant. I could not because the equity line was, I looked at and said, that's not mine. Like I'm literally, I'm out of money if I have to go into that. And I was probably pretty close. I was probably 30 days out from it before, you know, the, the one buyer sell helped a lot. But at the time, you know, I got listings quickly. I had 30 listings by October. The challenge was in 2007, trying to get them priced correctly was difficult because the market was moving away from us. So getting listings was not the trick at that point. It was, and I found that out pretty quickly. It's great. You got 30 listings, but you got zero pendings. So you need to figure out some uh, pricing conversations. Right. But you dove right in. So got a couple more questions on this. And thank you so much for opening up on all this. You mentioned that your broker had been one of the coaches with Mike Ferry Organization. And my question was going to be, did you have any coaching or training in that first seven months? Was it just from your broker or were you getting training beyond that? Greg Harrelson is the owner of the company, so he was my primary coach. So I didn't have anybody outside of the company. But when he stopped coaching for Mike, he basically set his office up and his agents became his coaching clients. So he runs his office like he's still a coach. So everything that I would have had in any other scenario like that, I had here locally. Going back to the very beginning, before you jumped in, you mentioned you weren't going to jump in until you found a broker you were confident about. How many brokers did you interview with? Eleven. <laughs> so you were serious. Eleven brokers, that's a lot. Did only one pop out is viable? Um, actually, one before I got here, where I'm at, I remember going home and telling my wife, all right, I think I found the one. And the interesting thing was the conversation was good. She and I clicked. They had a great office location. It was like four blocks off the beach, which at the time I thought office location is going to be huge and people walking in and that's all changed. And so that was as close as I got. And I remember I hadn't pulled the trigger and made the move. And within probably three weeks of me meeting them, they actually closed their doors. Oh, and no. that was that was an eye-opener. That was not the last one that I met with, but that was probably the closest one before I came where I am. And that was an eye-opener because that was one of those situations where I thought, okay, this is what I'm talking about. I'm going and I'm leaving something that I really don't want to do anymore for a better opportunity. But if I fail at this, it's got to be because I failed. I cannot fail because I made the wrong choice in the wrong process or the wrong company. I've got to figure this out. And then within 10 or 15 minutes of meeting Greg and asking the same question that I had asked everybody else, I was in. I was like, I'm good. Let's fast forward now to today. So you started in 2007. It's 2017. So now you've been in the business for 10 years. Let's talk about last year's production. How many homes did you sell last year, and what was the sales volume? Closed 163 sides last year and was just under $24 million. Do you recall what the GCI was on that? 
right at 680. Do you know what your career numbers are as far as number of homes sold and volume? Yep, I just actually this past year had hit kind of one of those milestones in my mind that I've been waiting for. And so I've had 1,029 transactions and right at 142 million. I hit 100 transactions my third full year in business. And I wanted to get enough to the point to where it averaged out 100 a year. So 10 years and 1,029, I finally broke that in 2016. Where are you at? Where is Myrtle Beach, South Carolina? So Myrtle Beach is what's also called the Grand Strand, is in the northeast corner of South Carolina. And it runs about 30 miles right along the coast. In my personal production, I service from the North South Carolina border down to Pauley's Island, which is like the 30, 35 miles south of the border. And then Greg and I, who I mentioned earlier, we partnered together in 2013 and opened up two franchises. We have two offices that we're co-owners of in Charleston, South Carolina, which is about 80 miles south of us in the Grand Strand. Is there a market that you do your personal production in more? Are you mainly focused in Myrtle Beach? Yeah, my personal production is all in Myrtle Beach. And my role as a owner and a coach in Charleston really just revolves around recruiting, hiring agents, and coaching them up to the production levels that they're looking for. Let's make sure everybody understands a clear picture of your personal production, your team production, and the market that you're in. What is the population of the market that you work? So we've got Horry County and then a portion of Georgetown County I work. So that's right around 320,000 full-time residents. Now we have, being a resort town, a significant amount of additional people in season that are second homeowners, stuff like that, but right around 325 full-time residents. And currently, do you focus your business on the residents that are there full-time year-round? Or are you more focused on the transient population, so to speak, the people that come in and out of the market based on the season? A good question. So I really have, from the beginning, tried to keep a good mix of inventory. So when I am looking and saying, okay, what am I going to go after? We, as you can see from the numbers, we have got a fairly low price point compared to some of the other resort areas in Florida or in the Northeast. So I'm always trying to build the price point, but I try to keep a good inventory across the line. So if you get too heavy in just one area, like if you're going to get real heavy and just focused on residential full-time residents, you would miss a huge portion of the transactions that are available here at the beach. And with that being said, though, if you focused only on the oceanfront and second homes and stuff like that, you would have probably really run into some challenges between 2008 and 2012 because unless you really, really wanted to get into the short sale business, then that was a tough market. There was a lot of distressed stuff, a lot of upside down properties, and you needed to have a good balance of inventory if you're going to keep doing transactions. Do you think that you're currently 50-50 or a fairly even split between full-time and part-time residents? Yeah, I've always run about 60-40. So about 60% of my transactions have been resort type, whether it's absentee, golf course, oceanfront type stuff, and then the rest of it, primary residence. Could you tell us about your real estate market? Yeah, so our average price point market is up a little bit. We're probably, I would anticipate this year, we'll probably end up somewhere around 170000 
three main areas, of course, the residential, the absentee owners, and resort-type properties. And you can kind of throw into the resort-type properties would be your investor-owned stuff, a lot of um, short-term rentals and things like that. Days on the market is interesting because that's one of the figures that can really, really get skewed recently. I know at least in our market, a lot of times you're seeing properties that are pulled off the MLS when they get a good price reduction. And depending on whether the MLS and whatever system you're looking at, whether it counts the total days or it only counts the current listing, there's some interpretation there. But our average days on the MLS right now for residential is about 150 days. And for the condos, right at 160 days. Now, the one other caveat to that is because we have so many people that are absentee owners and the market's better now than it has been three or four years ago. So if you've got something that's priced correctly in our market, it's not taking five and six months to sell. It's just we always have a lot of them. Brendan, is the price trending up, down, or flat in your area? For the last couple of years, we run around 3 to 4% increase in value. That's where we've been since 2014. I anticipate it'll be somewhere close to that this year. Let's talk about your lead generation and how do you get your business. First of all, just a big picture thing. Do I understand correctly that currently about 85% of your business is sellers? Yes. So that tells me you're still focusing on the listing side. And the big question is why? Why do you do that? My background in the prospecting has always been based on sellers, primarily because when I started, I had this pipe dream of, I want to work a very normal schedule. I had come from the retail industry, and I worked a lot of hours. And even when I wasn't supposedly working, I was working. So I didn't want to work nights, and I didn't want to work weekends. And so when I started, then I was taught that if you want to have more control over your schedule, then you need to focus on the listings because the listing agent, you're really kind of the employer. And as a buyer's agent, you become the employee. So I've always focused on the listings. And frankly, on the buyer's side, I just refer buyers out. I didn't put them under my name, gave them to a buyer's agent, took a referral on them and just moved on. So that was primarily because I didn't want to manage the process. I was working always on different things outside of just the normal productivity. So I really didn't ever want to take on the management of the buyer's agent. But that's one thing. Last year, I started about midway through and said, okay, I'm just going to find the right person, one that I don't have to manage as much, one that's got some experience. And so my growth in the next couple of years is going to be to start taking advantage of the buyer transactions and be able to get that number up. You mentioned that in the beginning, the reason you focused on the listing side was you wanted to gain control over your time those evenings and weekends. Did that play out by focusing on the seller side? Did you gain control over your evenings and weekends? Were you able to take that time off? It did. You know, in the beginning when I was building my business, uh, of course, I spent time prospecting, you know, on Saturdays and then the evenings, but that was by design. That was scheduled in, and I knew when I came in, I was going to make two hours of calls and then leave, plan my life, and then plan business around it versus I know a lot of times one of the challenges in getting started and working primarily with buyers is while maybe you have more incoming leads and you don't have to go out and actually generate them yourself, 
you're kind of at their mercy of, you know, you have to go out and show them property on times where maybe it's convenient to them and not you. And I just didn't want to sign up for that because I felt like if I'm going to start from zero, I might as well start from zero in a system that I'm willing to do versus get comfortable doing something else and then try to change it. My understanding from what you said earlier is, and you tell me if I'm correct, basically for the first eight to nine years, you referred out all your buyers to someone else for a referral fee. Is that correct? Yeah. I think in my 10 years, I probably have only personally gone out and worked with, I'm sure, less than 20 buyers. And those would have been either past clients, past seller clients, really, really close referrals of people that I just wouldn't hand them off to somebody or buyers like that. And so that model has worked really well for you. You've received compensation from those buyer transactions in the form of that referral fee. In fact, you know, it's a big chunk of the profit. So my question is, why at this point then would you be changing gears and building up your buyer side instead of continuing down the path of what's been very successful and I assume profitable? Then that's the question I've had to answer for the last probably five or six years. And the reason that I'm making the switch is because I have to leverage at this point now, a lot of my listing inventory is coming from my database. So I'm not prospecting two to three hours a day anymore to generate listings. I've got a lot of that incoming from people that I've talked with in years past that now come to me based on the information I've been sending them. So I have to find a way to continue to grow the transactions and leverage more of my time because my focus is really on the company growth in Charleston and personal production, though I'm committed to not letting it slip. I'm actually committed to growing both. Frankly, it's probably going to be easier to manage buyer's agents and manage the lead flow that goes to buyer's agents versus trying to train and coach good listing agents on my team. Because really good listing agents that can do really well, they don't want to be on a team. They're going to go create their own team. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. Well, we haven't talked about your team yet, but I'm going to bring something up. You currently have, if I understand correctly, two listing specialists. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. So you've learned how to bring listing specialists in and train them, and I hope keep them. <laughs> yep. And so you have an interesting model there, but you make it sound as though a lot of those listing specialists are going to want to spin out. Have you had that challenge in the past? I have. You know, it was a really good learning opportunity. One of the people that I hired very early on as an admin, he had just gotten licensed and was in college and finishing up. And, you know, he did an okay job for me as an admin. We still laugh about it. Did an okay job. He wanted to start making some calls in the evening because he saw what I was doing and kind of like me, he's like, that doesn't look that hard. So he started coming in and making some calls. And so he transitioned from being my hourly admin to being on my team and becoming a really good listing agent. And 
a really good listing agent, he looked at me after a while and said, listen, no hard feelings, but I'm moving on. And I honestly, at that point, really couldn't blame him because he had the skills. And so I have dealt with that. And and he's still with our company and is one of the top agents in the market. So yes, that is one of those things. You have to be real clear on the role that people play on your team and make sure they understand the role, make sure you understand the role. And then that way, it will be a long-term relationship. If there's anything where there's a sense of, you know, I'm not getting what I'm worth or I'm given too much, it's going to come up. So you might as well have open conversations and say, the agent feels like they're a good team type agent. You feel like they're a good addition to the team and then things work well. Are you familiar with the DISC personality profile, D-I-S-C? I am. Do you look for certain characteristics in either your listing specialist or your buyer specialist that match those profiles? Yeah, I do. I can tell you where I really look at it is in the support in my regular staffing, but I do the high eyes that I've had in the past have usually been good on either position. And then the Ds tend to always gravitate towards being the ones that are the listing side, but those who have been pretty productive for me. I'm a very high eye with a D close behind it. So I don't know if maybe that's just us matching up together or if that's really just the role that they're playing. You mentioned the admin. What do you look for there as far as the disc? The one that I have right now has been with me for about six years. You know, I would share a comment with anybody who's looking for or thinking about hiring an admin. If you're thinking about hiring an admin, you probably are six months behind in hiring them. And if you're committed to hiring them, even if you don't interview them, just go ahead and hire one because the chances are in the beginning, they don't know what the job is. You don't really know what you need yet. And so it's probably not going to work out. The sooner you can get one hired and get a little bit of experience, the closer you're going to get to the right one. So I went through a couple early on, two or three, and then found one that was really a good fit. He's a real, real high ass with a fairly high C behind it. And it's just top notch. And been with you for six years, so that's worked out. We've already started down the team line, so let's go ahead and just fill out the picture for everyone. My understanding is you, this is the team currently. you got two listing specialists, one buyer specialist, one client care coordinator, one executive assistant, and then yourself as the team leader. Did I get that correct? Yep. Okay. Fantastic. Was it your client care coordinator or your executive assistant that's been with you for six years? That was the executive assistant. The executive assistant. Could you tell us what each of these administrative people do? Yep. So the listing specialists are following my model of what I did in the beginning. So they're the ones that are in prospecting, focusing primarily on generating listing leads, going on listing appointments. That's their main role. The buyer specialist that I brought on the team last spring, experienced agent, moved down from Virginia and really has just been She's working the leads that come in. So any of the buyer leads come in, sign calls or online leads. I've done a couple of lead sources and stuff that have been paid for lead sources and still work all of those. The executive assistant, she used to do everything. So anything that you could think of in terms of servicing, 
she'd get the listings over to the office. She would uh, set up signs and lot boxes. She would handle client questions. She'd handle agent questions on properties. All of that stuff she was doing. I've transitioned her to where she is primarily handling still the listings and things that go to the office, but she is really the stuff that I'm doing in Charleston, she's handling the lead flow that's coming into me, managing my database, she's handling. She's doing anything that I'm doing in terms of lead gen with social media, she's doing. And about a year and a half ago, that's when I hired the client care coordinator who basically took over from listing through the contract. So from listing through negotiating the contract, he's the first point of contact for the client. So he's the one that's in charge of, you know, when we take a new listing, introducing himself and setting the expectations for what's going to happen through the listing benchmarks we're looking for in terms of showings, what happens if we don't have offers, communicating pricing suggestions, all the way up through price reduction conversations, and then actually negotiating the offer for me. So he's licensed the client care coordinator. Yeah, everybody on my team is licensed. Once it goes under contract, is the executive assistant handling that, the transaction management? As an office, as a company, we're actually set up. The company provides a closing coordinator. And so the closing coordinator is going from contract to close and juggling all those different tasks. The closing coordinator is contracted out. You're just paying a fee per closing. That's right. So the listing specialist and the buyer specialist, how long have they been with you? Both of the listing specialists have been about 15 months, and the buyer specialist is just now coming up on 12 months. You mentioned before that you had a great fellow that started with you on the admin side then moved over and became your listing specialist. We talked about went out on his own, but within the company. Do you think that that is something that may happen with your current listing specialist? It could, and if that were to happen, then that really would be okay because the mistake that I made the first time that it happened was I learned stuff. I make mistakes every day. I learned a lot from that because I would have, having it to do over again, he moved on, I think, primarily because he was looking and saying, I'm not sure what the future is. He didn't know his position. So the difference that has happened since then is In the conversation, when I bring someone on, I'm very clear with them and say, listen, if you start thinking, I feel comfortable, I'm going to take some risk at some point, and I think that I'm going to be able to do this on my own, let's talk. I'd rather help you make that transition and be able to have you be successful than to have you go out on your own and then fail. Because what a lot of times people don't realize is they see in the team environment that they're doing these deals and they're going, well, gosh, I can do all this stuff. But the difference in being a team member and being a team leader is risk and investment. And a lot of people that are on teams, they have good skills, but they don't have the commitment or they're just not to the point where they're ready to go and take the risk of saying, all right, I'm going to leave today and I'm going to have to go set up all these systems. And frankly, just like me as an agent, when I became an owner, I didn't have a clue all the things that went into being an owner of a company when I was an agent. So now it's interesting. You think 
gosh, I've got this split and where's all this stuff going to? Well, own a company and you'll see. <laughs> it comes up pretty quick. Brendan, what are you doing as the team leader? Are you still taking listings? What do you do for the team? Yeah, so my primary role in terms of my actual production team is I'm still spending about an hour to two hours generating. Now, it's primarily incoming leads, and then I still am calling expires every morning, but I'm not spending three and four hours doing that. So I am still generating transactions for the team and then coaching the agents on their production. So I'm doing regular coaching calls, and whether it's on the actual skills or mindset, things like that. And then, like I said, the majority of my time outside of my personal production is spent in trying to grow the other office. Would you mind disclosing to us how you've set up the compensation for your listing specialists and buyer specialists? Yep, there's some difference based on experience and the type of, like there's a premium for if they're bringing in leads that are 100% theirs versus something that's maybe coming from my database or something that's what I would call a premium lead where I'm maybe spending money on something. I don't spend a lot of money on lead generation because, in fact, right now, I've canceled the last two that I had been using, and I don't have any monthly expenses that are going out besides some stuff that I'm doing on social media. But for the most part, depending on the agent, it's between 45 and 60% split to them on any of the transactions. And then, like I said, if it's something that they've brought in where I didn't have anything to do with it, then they may go as high as 65%. So it's between 45 and 65%, depending on the source. If you're generating the source, it's probably at the lower end. If they're bringing in, it's at the higher end. Is it the same split, no matter whether it's a seller or a buyer? Typically, yeah. They're very similar. And you have your listing specialists involved in the prospecting side. You're teaching them how to do it, but they're doing lead generation as well as conversion as well as going out on the appointments and signing up the sellers, and I assume walking them through the transaction if they need any hand-holding. Correct. You offer the little higher compensation on the sell side than I've seen. However, you're having your listing specialist more involved in the work, especially that prospecting, so it makes a lot of sense, and I appreciate you walking through that. But let's go back now and talk about the lead generation You've mentioned before database and database marketing. What's your concept of database marketing? What does that mean to you? Early on, when I was kind of introduced to, all right, you're going to go prospect. I was okay with that because I knew that if I could learn the language and make contact, it was a numbers game. And I got that. And I can remember probably within three weeks of me starting, then I remember Greg walking in saying, all right, we need to start getting emails from everybody. Well, what are we going to do with them? And we didn't really know, but we knew at that point, and this is in mid-2007, we knew at that point that we were starting to come up. You know, I remember I had results mail in 2007, got a little results mail account. So all these people that I was talking to, most of them were no, not going to do anything. Great. Well, you know what? A lot of your friends in the neighborhood have asked me to keep them up to date on things that are going on. I want you to get the same information. What's a good email for you? So I started collecting these emails. And as a company, we started really focusing on this. And every month, I'd sit down and I would just send them something that was relevant to what was going on in the market. So instead of sending them the, I just sold 
six properties or, you know, call me, call me, call me. I was just basically looking at the, all the conversations that I had over a 30-day period. What was the theme? What were people wanting to know? They wanted to know what's going on with the oceanfront. Is the market going down? So I'd sit down and just put together a good email. Well, I thought they were good. I don't know. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. <laughs> but it was basically content that over time positioned me to be the authority in their eyes for what was happening. And so I was religious about it. Every month they had to get something. And the difference early on, it was never salesy. I didn't put in, you know, I sold this many properties. I had this many transactions this year, this month. It was always content that was about the market. And so started seeing that people were responding to that. And so after five or six months, I might get an email from somebody saying, hey, I don't know if you remember our conversation, but how's the market? And those were now incoming leads that it started dawning on me that, you know, the insurance business has residuals. You sign somebody up for a policy and you get the premium until they cancel. This was the residual of the real estate business. I could get paid next year for something that I did today as long as I, one, got a way to stay in contact with them, and two, gave them good content. So if they continued to consume my content, I knew that they would see me as somebody that they might give somebody a shot when they were ready to make a move. So it started out as an email database. Results Mail was the account that you started in. Has that developed into something else? Do you currently have some other CRM that you're keeping all this information in? Yes, it's come full circle from them. The evolution was pretty interesting because we would, you know, you have to develop the database first. You have to put the people in it. Then you have to get them some content. But then you have to follow up with them because what we were finding is we get the people that would initiate the conversation with us. So the guy that says, I got an email from you for the last six months. Can you call me and tell me how the market's going? But then we would be calling back through the database and just saying, hey, we talked with you last year. Just want to see how things are going. How can we help you out? Oh, I love your stuff. It's been so helpful. Great. When are you planning on selling? Oh, I actually just did last month. <laughs> and we're going, wait a second. So we realized that we were starting to educate the public at a pretty high level of what's going on, and they loved it, but then they were going and choosing a different agent. And for whatever reason, you know, they just, they had somebody else in mind. So we had moved through the process to where now, we use, and I've been early adopters of FusionSoft. And in FusionSoft, the difference is it allows you to kind of monitor people's click patterns and their travel through what content you're sending out. So now we can really look and see if somebody is clicking through our information on a monthly basis and they're looking at the videos that we're doing and they're looking at the PDFs that we're sending on, why properties don't sell or how to prepare your property to sell in, in the summertime. But we know if they're kind of looking at that stuff, that's our indicator. They're bubbling up to the top. Now we need to be proactive and get in front of those people on the phone because they might be thinking of doing something. So it's gone from just really being there by default to now being very by design. Yeah, in FusionSoft, that's a pretty sophisticated program. Are you guys able to put that together and work on it yourself, or have you had to bring in programmers to help you with it? Yeah, so we have worked with a couple of people that have done just an unbelievable job 
we've provided the content and they've provided kind of the back-end knowledge of how the system works and just really been able to leverage that. It's been really, really solid. But it's definitely not an average user-type program. Like any single agent that said, hey, I'm going to do this without some serious dedication to and probably staffing to be able to handle it would probably be way, way, way over their head. They'd be spending all their time in Infusionsoft. Yep. How long have you been using Infusionsoft? Probably since 2011 or 12. Oh, you were an early adopter. What were you using before that? Before that, I think we were probably doing results mail. I was doing some things with my database through Top Producer a little bit before that. And yeah, that was probably where the transition happened. Let's get into some of the big metrics. So we know where you're holding it. We know kind of how you're staying in front of people. How many people are in your database? I've got about 24,000 people in my database now. 24,000. That is a lot of people to keep up with. I assume you have them segmented? It was just kind of dumb luck. It wasn't anything that I saw because I didn't even know about Infusionsoft. And Greg was, as the company owner, really had discovered that system. But before that, when I was using Top Producer, I was overly detailed in how I tagged people. So if I talked to John Doe and he had an oceanfront condo, John Doe went in as an oceanfront condo. He went in under the Caribbean building. He went in under, I talked to him because he was an expired listing. So I might have six or eight tags for him. Well, little did I know that that became, that was so important when you move over to a system where you can kind of really dial down and market directly to a certain group. So now if I've got a buyer's agent that comes in and says, I need something in the Caribbean building, I go to my database. I've got them all segmented out. I know exactly who I've talked to in the Caribbean, who've been on the market before, and I can tailor the communication to go right to them and not have to just be blasting out to everybody. Because if you don't do that, you're really all or nothing. You have to send it to everybody or just don't send it. What is your marketing plan out to this database? Do you go out to them with general information and emails still, or is everything detailed down? And then if it is, how far down does it go? And what's the frequency? So everyone is going to get, let's say that it's a seller. My sellers are going to get a recurring email every month that's got, like I said, they may have a video link in there for why homes didn't sell or preparing homes. They may have a PDF with information in there. Then there's going to be a specific campaign or a sequence for past clients. There's going to be a sequence for expired listings, for for sub-owner listings. Any type of seller is going to have their own sequence that's anywhere from maybe 30 days to 24 months. So you're keeping in front of them with relevant information. And so, of course, when they click on anything, I'm going to get a notification so I know this person's engaging here. Same with buyers. Buyers are getting their own individual campaigns. And then the other thing that I can do with that is I can now pull out of that database if I want to. And let's say I've got um, a community that I really have kind of focused on. I've done enough prospecting in there where I've got a high percentage of the emails of the owners. I'll pull them out take them out of the database, and maybe I can create a custom audience, custom Facebook audience. 
and start marketing to them through Facebook, whether it's with a video of, hey, here's three reasons why aggressive marketing is really, really helping in the Tidewater community right now. And so I'll do a quick two, three minute video and it shows up on their Facebook feed because I actually have the database for everybody in the community. So things like that have allowed us to, you can go through and call or you can go and send an email or if you're an agent, you might go and do a Facebook ad. But when I call a community after I sold and then they get an email with the just sold flyer that's on there and then I'm mailing them market update and I'm showing up in their Facebook feed because I created a custom audience, that is domination. That's where you become kind of the household name in the community. Do you have a minimum number that you want to have in that group before you start this multi-pronged campaign? Well, obviously with as many as I have, there's no way I'd be able to pull it off with everyone. So these are going to be properties, a little bit less about the minimum number, more about do they fit the mold of the properties I'm going after. So if I'm trying to increase the price point, then I'm going to go through and I'm going to sort and say, all right, let me see all the communities that I have. I most likely wouldn't put a lot of effort in unless I had at least 30 to 50 people in the database. So show me anybody that's got at least 30 people over 300,000 in terms of an average price point, then I'm going to go after them and make that process work. So, you know, in terms of going and doing all of those on a monthly basis, there's probably two or three residential communities that I'm focusing on with all those different prongs on a monthly basis. You've mentioned communities several times, and you've also mentioned earlier that you're doing the beach, you're doing condos, you're doing houses. When you're talking about communities, are you talking about a condominium building? Are you talking about a neighborhood? could be either one. So I'm kind of using that term interchangeably. So whether it's a residential community or a oceanfront building or a golf course community. That's pretty exciting stuff there. And your database business is generating just over a quarter of your production. So all of this is very exciting. You're taking advantage of this database you built up over time. As you said before, get a residual out of there by learning how to stay up with them and tracking their actions, and then that causes an action from you. How long did it take you to set up all these action reactions inside of Infusionsoft? Well, Greg and I wrote a vast majority of the sequences and the communication that goes out together, and it's been an ongoing process. We have written them, we've rewritten them, we've figured out communication has changed in just the 10 years that I've been in business, just what people are responding to. So it's been an ongoing process, but there were times where I'd sit down for a day and just think through and complete a new sequence, a new campaign, but it's been an evolution. It was not like we, and I don't think it's ever going to be like we're done. It's just continuing to tweak things that they're not getting the return that they used to, then we got to figure out why. Another 25% of your business or so is coming from expired listings. How do you approach expired listings? So every morning I'm in, my guys are both in at 8 o'clock and we start calling. We'll typically go through the expired listings two to three times in a day. I think as technology has changed and everybody's got every video and how-to that's out there, 
the amount of people that know that expireds are a great source of business has increased. So there's a lot of people calling. And there's a lot of people that are calling that don't have, probably haven't put a lot of time in. The skills aren't necessarily where they need to be. And so you've got a lot of people that are getting a lot of calls. And it's gotten tougher to get people to, one, answer the phone and, two, respond. So you have to change up the program. You have to be calling at different times of the day. I send mailers to ones that I really want to talk to, and that gets another portion of them. If we really, really, really want to talk to them and can't get a hold of them at different times of day, then door knocking is still effective. So again, it's not not a one-size-fits-all anymore. You have to hit the prospect, and especially on for sale by owners and expires, you have to have multiple prongs to your strategy. You've got to go after them different ways. Let's break a little bit of that down. First of all, how do you find the phone number for the expired listing? So I have gone through, I think, just about every service that's out there. I currently use Vulcan, but I think any of the big ones that you hear about are probably all very similar. You're going to find some of them, one day you find good numbers, and then somebody that's using Red X in the office is finding a number that you didn't have in Vulcan. So I think you see and hear a lot of people switching back and forth. In my experience, they're all about the same. If you're not supplementing your own individual lookup along with those systems, you're probably missing out. So I've got all the numbers that come up in my Vulcan every morning, and in the same from 7.15 to 7.50, Laura, my admin, is going through and using whether it's Spokio or I don't even know how many different systems she's got access to to look up individual owners, white pages, yellow pages. She's going through and trying to find people on social media, LinkedIn to find other numbers that might be associated with them. But I use Vulcan as an auto system, but I haven't relied solely on one of those for three or four years. I've always had somebody going behind and looking them up along with the system. How many additional numbers do you think that you're coming up with by doing your own search? I think I'm probably adding another 20% of good numbers. The interesting thing that's happened with the system is I've talked with a lot of people in different markets and they're seeing the same thing. So the expired and the for sale by owner systems that are out there right now, they're going multiple layers. So they're going deeper and it's a good thing because you've got a system that pulls the expired. Well, we know that they're not only pulling for that person, but they're pulling previous addresses. So they're pulling previous address that the name on the tax record showed up. Uh, They're pulling previous properties that that name lived at. So you're getting numbers that are old, that are cousins, that are, no, I don't know, I used to rent that property three years ago. (laughs) And so a lot of people get frustrated, and it's kind of like Webley. You hear agents saying, well, these aren't any good. Well, the fact is technology has allowed us to find more numbers, but yeah, you have to sift through some more junk before you can get to the right person. So if you're calling them getting frustrated saying these numbers are no good, just understand somewhere in there the number's good, but you might have to sift through more stuff. There's more numbers showing up for somebody now than back when everybody was like, gosh, the home numbers are going away. Nobody's using them. How are we going to ever call anybody anymore? Well, we're fine. They're going so deep 
that it takes more time now to get through expired than it did like five or six years ago because you have to get through the numbers that aren't necessarily any good. What's your script that you like to use when you call an expired listing? Just the, the Mike Ferry listing script. Say, Mike, listen, I'm, I'm giving you a call. It's Brendan with Century 21. Your property over on First Avenue came off the market. I was wanting to find out when are you going to interview the right agent for the job of selling your home? Probably in the next week or two. Perfect. And now when it was on the market, I understand since it came off, it's been on the market six months, didn't sell. Tell me, what do you think kept it from selling up to that point, Mike? I don't think my agent worked very hard. Okay, so the agent didn't work very hard, so you need somebody that's going to be able to market it more aggressively? Yeah, I hope so. Okay, great. Now, are you familiar with the techniques that I use to sell homes just like yours every day? I'm not. Okay, perfect. I'm going to get you some information over so that you have got all of my info, my track record, and then what we'll do is I'm going to set a time where we can get together next week, and I'm going to be able to get over there and tell you exactly what we need to uh, to be able to get that home on the market and get it sold. What's the best email for you, Mike? Oh, sure. It's uh, Mike at uh, ABC.com. Okay, perfect. So then I would finish the call, get the information that I need on the property and get them over my marketing plan and set the appointment. When you make those calls, what percentage of the time do they go ahead and just set an appointment versus nothing happens? If they'll stay on the phone then there's really no reason that I shouldn't be able to set the appointment. So the only time that I'm not going to set the appointment with them is if there's a condition, meaning not an objection, not like, no, I don't want to sell, because we know they want to sell. There's just something that we have to figure out you know, what happened. But if it's a condition, a good example would be, listen, I just I put the tenant in there, and I've got it in my lease that it can't be sold. I couldn't keep it on the market more than 90 days. It didn't sell. I've got a tenant in there, and I've already agreed to him that I wouldn't show it. That's a condition. I can't really overcome that. So in that case, I'm probably not going to set an appointment, but I'm definitely going to set a follow-up for probably 90 days to make sure everything went okay with the tenant. They got moved in. They're paying because I want to have an opportunity for them down the road but it's not going to be an immediate appointment. The only other ones are going to be the ones that hang up on me. So anybody else, if we know they were on the market, we know they wanted to sell at one point, everything that they're telling me up to that point on the call, if it's not a condition and they haven't hung up on me, is an objection. And there's a way to overcome the objection and set the appointment. If you were to have 10 conversations with expireds, there was no condition that was limiting them. How many of those would end up becoming appointments? Well, like I said, if they didn't hang up on me, now probably because I'm going to ask a lot of questions, I'm probably going to get three or four of them that might hang up on me. And that's okay because they're going to be then somebody that I'm going to probably go a day and I'm going to call them back and find out where are we at. And a lot of times they're getting so many calls, they're not going to remember that it was me in the first place. But I typically set usually two expired appointments a day if I can get a hold of that many people, and that might mean I only talk to three or four. So I'm probably setting 50% of the expires that I talk with are going to be an appointment. You made it sound as though one of the challenges is that a lot of people just hang up. They just, they're frustrated with whatever, and they hang up and end the call. Yeah, and I think that's always kind of the case. doesn't mean that it's going to be like that the next time, but you have to, there's going to be different times where, I mean, everybody's living their life. So if you 
pick up the phone and you're dialing at 8.05 and they're on the way out the door and they just, the dog didn't go outside in time and the kids are getting upset because they didn't get Cheerios and there's five other things going on. The chances of you, even with a really good script and some good skills, you might not be very productive, but you have to be resilient. And if you think that in this business that no means the end, no is the beginning. And the job of sales doesn't even start until you get your first no. So you might as well just look at that and say, that's great. Now we're ready to start selling. You mentioned if you have someone you really want to get a hold of, you'll send them out a mailer. What does the mailer look like? Typically, it's just a note with the listing on there and asking them to give me a call. I've got some ideas on what could be done differently. And it's interesting because a lot of times people are looking for something besides, look how great I am. And automation has been awesome. Like There's a lot of things that I couldn't do 10 years ago that I can now that are pretty effective. But Sometimes the automated form letter of here's my track record and look how awesome I am with a proper signature and everything on it with your address is like it doesn't even get open. So you have to kind of change it up and be a little bit more personal and a handwritten note makes a big difference sometimes. And again, it's not going to get every single person to pick up the phone and call back. But not every single person is going to listen to you when you call either. So it is really trying to figure out how many different approaches can I take and then being very systematic about it and doing it over and over and over and over, and you're going to get a return. Well, Brendan, are you profitable? Yes. Like I said, I don't spend a lot outside of my payroll. So I typically, my profit margin usually runs from around 38 to 42%. Wow, that's great. So if $100 comes in the top of your business, about $40 is popping out the bottom in profit. Yep. Well, Brendan, what drives you? My family. That's really kind of the uh, inspiration behind me. I feel like I've got a responsibility. I've got a 14-year-old, just turned 14. That's my son and my daughter just turned 11. And I feel like I've got a responsibility to to be able to show them that I think we all have kind of talked the talk of you can do anything that you want to do, but I feel a really, really heavy responsibility to be able to actually show them. And that's kind of where it comes up from my why is being able to show them that you don't have to be on this go to college, go to the corporate job and climb the ladder you can actually just figure out something that you want to commit to and get really good at it, and you're going to be taken care of. You will be taken care of. There is a place for it. So if I can show them that, that's kind of my inspiration. Well, Brendan, why have you been so successful? One thing is I was fortunate enough to come into a system just because I kept looking that worked, and it was a really, really good fit. It may not be a good system for everyone, but there is a system out there for everyone. The challenge with agents, I believe, and the new ones that I've coached and and it hasn't worked is that they come in and they aren't willing to work some type of system and treat it like a career. I came in, 
I was 100% okay. In fact, I was seeking something that was very defined and show me what to do. And once I could connect the dots between, all right, I see what they're doing and I see the success that they're having, I'm willing to do those things, then it was done. And I think that that is probably the biggest part of it is I found a system that was a good fit for me, and then I was very coachable. I just did what I was told. Well, Brendan, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? I would tell them to have a heart-to-heart with themselves, be honest with themselves, and ask if they're really looking for a career and if they're really willing to work hard in the beginning. Sometimes, Mike, I look at this career and go, the opportunity is almost unfair. And I look around and I go, man, eventually somebody's going to find out, like, we work hard, we work hard, but we're not digging ditches. I'm not out building bridges and I'm not saving lives, but we can be really, really well compensated and make a difference in people's lives. And it's sometimes it's pretty amazing to me, but I think that people come in and they're not willing to put in the work and you have to work. Like you can't just come in and show up at 10 o'clock and leave at three and do 50 deals a year. It just doesn't work like that. So have that conversation with yourself. See if you're willing to work and then find someone, whether it's a company, a person, or, you know, hopefully the person's within your company to be your coach. And the coach really is all the systems are out there. All the resources are out there. Your coach is really your accountability partner somebody that's going to hold you accountable to doing the things that you say that you're willing to do to get what you want. That's really the role of the coach. And that is something that in most offices, most companies, doesn't really exist. And so I think most people are going to need that. You're going to need the accountability and you're going to need the support. Well, Brendan, do you think that top agent interviews like this one with Mastermind Agent are valuable? I think there's huge, huge, huge value in programs like this. And I'm not saying that because I'm on the program. I'm saying that because, and I'll share a quick story if I can. When I started and I came in, Greg said, you know what? It sounds like you're a good fit, but before you make the commitment, I want you to go out and I want you to shadow another agent in the office. One of the best agents in our office, I think you'll be able to ask him some questions and see kind of what's going on. I said, okay. So I took two mornings off work and I came in and I watched him prospect. I had questions for him. How long have you been doing this? What do you do every day? And at the end of those two days, I realized that I could do whatever he was doing. And at the time I was doing the math, I said, what do you think you're going to do this year in terms of transactions? I think he was on pace for like 85, 90 transactions. It's like, okay, I'm doing the math. That's pretty good income. I can do that. So right then and there, I realized if I come on board here, that's my normal. He's who I'm going after. And little did I know at the time, not only was he going to be the top agent in the office, he was going to be the top agent that year in the market. So my normal was in an environment I was exposed to, that is the bar. And I think right now, things like what you're doing with this podcast, with these recordings, they give people exposure that they never would get maybe in their office or even maybe in their market. 
I mean, there's probably people that are listening in small markets where nobody's doing over 10 or 15 deals. I got news for you. You can take the entire market over if that's where you're at. But if you never got exposed to the ideas that people are using and the contribution that people would say, hey, call me and I'm an open book, that's a huge value. But people got to take advantage of it. Well, Brendan, I've come to the end of my questions for today. Do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners? The only thing I would say, Mike, is I really do value my being able to contribute to people. So if I can help anybody that's in your audience, don't hesitate to reach out to me and I'll share with them anything that I can. And I just really appreciate the opportunity to get on with you. I had fun. Well, Brendan, thank you for sharing. Before you entered real estate, you took your time interviewing a dozen brokers to find a proven system that you could tap into. You picked prospecting, mastered your scripts, committed to the schedule, and reaped the rewards with 30 listings in your first 150 days and 22 closings in your first seven months. You focused on listing sellers and referred out buyers to clear your schedule. You achieved 100 closings per year by your third year in the business and maintained that level of production for almost a decade. Your system is simple and successful. You proved that a great idea is only successful when mixed with great implementation, commitment, and dedication. Thank you for sharing and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who few people thought would succeed, yet he did it anyway. Find out who he is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.